Well, we have had a little two-week hiatus from, from the letter of First Peter uh, with uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. But so as we, as we come back to it now, I want us to just a quick look in the, in the rearview mirror to see the, the ground that we've covered so far. And so if you'll remember, Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were, who were scattered across ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And they were beginning to face extraordinary pressure um, because of their identification with Christ. They, they were at odds with the culture around them, and they were the, the, the fires of persecution were really beginning to be stoked for these believers. And, and I, I don't just mean in this governmental threatening sort of way that was to come and that would really break out soon after this letter was written and it was beginning to 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 grow now but even just in a relational social just these believers were ostracized by their neighbors and by their family members and disowned and 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 just in that in that culture this was a, a very difficult uh, life for these early christians and so the heat's being turned up but peter writes to them and encourages them in the midst of that to stand firm in the grace of God. And so this is, this is the letter. So he begins the letter he, with, in, in the first 12 verses with this stirring reminder of all that God has done for, for them and for us in Christ Jesus. And so he, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And he's, and he's given us this inheritance in heaven that, that can never be taken away from us. And so he's, he's just wanting them to see this. That no trial that they go through or that we ever go through can ever take that away from us. So Peter wants that drilled deep down into their souls. And, and even now, though, though suffering, we, we, we're privileged to enjoy the salvation, the salvation that the prophets search to, to try to, to understand. And the, and the angels themselves are standing on tiptoe trying to, trying to grasp what, this incredible salvation that, that Christians know. And so this is, this, is what he, this is where he begins. Then you get to verse 13 where we started reading. And that first word, therefore... In, in light of this incredible salvation, Peter tells them, tells us how we should respond to these, these blessings. And so we're given this series of commands in chapter 1. And, and these four commands that flow out of here. Live in hope. Set your hope fully on the grace. Be holy. Fear God. And then to love one another, we'll see next time. And so these, these imperatives, they're built on this bedrock of these gospel indicatives. Now that's kind of muted, but I just—I was thinking of even just this morning uh, that it, I remember having uh, as a father, and certainly you moms in a greater way. But uh, even as a dad, when a firstborn child, and so you—you have—you've anticipated this, and you're holding this child, and you're so happy, and just what your life has changed, and it's a joyful experience, and I can remember people, older people in my life, parents and grandparents, and saying things, you're a father now, you, you need to love this child, you need to provide for them, you need to set an example for them, you need to keep your marriage strong for this child. There are, there are these responsibilities and these commands that, are, that, that come from the fact of this new status that I have, this new relationship and this blessing that I have. It's not burdensome to hear those commands. There's, there's great delight in that. And that's just, this is the way I should respond to this enormous blessing. Well, in a far greater way, this is what we're seeing. Peter starts with this, this overwhelming reality of all that we have 
from God through Jesus Christ and what He's done. And said, in light of that, this is how you should live. And this is what we're, this is in the section we're talking about. So in, in the command we're looking at today is built upon the previous two commands. You see that little conjunction. And in verse 17 is where we're beginning today. And so this, this command, uh, 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 the, or this, this, these verses, verses 17 to 21, it's one long sentence in the Greek. And uh, the core of this sentence is one command. And you see it in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here's the command, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So that's the tree trunk in this, in this paragraph in verses 17 to 21. And, and there are going to be some branches that go off with that. But there's this one command to conduct yourselves with fear. And then on both sides of that command, we're going to see Peter give reasons why we should live lives that are shaped by the fear of the Lord. And so fear, we, we've talked about hope. We're going to talk about love next week. But fear, in these, in these list of commands, it's a word that I, I think conjures up kind of negative thoughts and feelings and images for, for many people, even, even Christians. And so, and obviously, misplaced fear is a, is a negative thing. So fear of man. You students that were on the winter, winter retreat, you, you talked about that. And, and fear of circumstances or fear of, of the future, that kind of thing. That's fearing circumstance instead of trusting God. So that is obviously negative. But rightly placed fear, fear of God, is good and should characterize our lives as Christians. So we need to take Peter's command seriously. We can't pick and choose which of these responses to the gospel and to the blessings of salvation that we want to be. It's not the Piccadilly line. And we, yeah, I'll take, I like a lot of hope and, um, and some love. That's really good. Uh, just a dab of holiness. Fear, no, uh, you just you keep that. I, I'm, I'm good. So that, that's kind of how we want to think. But we need to, we need to take these verses seriously, brothers and sisters. So rather than trying to twist God's word to make it conform to our lives and to what, the way we want to live, we need to conform our lives to what God's word clearly says here. And so let's, let's work to define the fear of God first. So maybe when you hear fear of God, you, hear, you, you kind of picture a person cringing before this angry deity or something like that. And, and so this God is raised, clenched fist, just ready to just bop you on the head and just send lightning bolts down at you because of something you do if you fail or something like that. And so even as a Christian, maybe you, when you hear fear of God, you're thinking fearing His wrath for you make a mistake, you sin, you don't do your quiet time, boom, God's going to get you. I ah, need to be afraid of God. That's not it. Please get this. This is not it. That's not, that cannot be... That cannot possibly be what he's talking about in light of what we've already seen in verses 3 to 12. That cannot possibly be what he's talking about in light of what we've been looking at Good Friday and Easter. The wrath of God has been spent upon Christ. There's nothing left for us if we are in Jesus. We have His righteousness. That's, that's how we, we have that reckoned to us and that's how we're, uh, we're treated by God. It's as, as though we have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so that's not it. But this fear that, that Peter writes about, it's not some paralyzing kind of sense of dread or cowardice before God, but it's this kind of reverent, holy, obedient, loving, respect, and awe we have for God. 
Now the challenge for us in that is because that can be so muted. Because words like reverence and and respect, they're so watery in our culture today. And so so we struggle to really grasp the sense. But I uh, maybe just a way to illustrate. It's not perfect, but I hope that you can see how this can be such a good thing. I, I do I used to do a lot more than I do now, but I enjoy woodworking. And I in fact I had a little project around the house yesterday had to get the table saw out to 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 rip a, a couple pieces of wood and so I have a fear of power tools a healthy fear of power tools I hope and so I have heard enough stories of people losing digits and being disfigured and I've cut the tip of my thumb off on a table saw before and I've I've had some very close calls with table saws in particular and so, the, of course, the first thing you do when you get a table saw off your woodworker, you take off that anti-kickback blade, you know, guard thing because it's always in the way. So you take that off, which is meant to protect you. And uh, but inevitably, there's been a couple times in particular, man, when I was was cutting something and and that thing kicked back, and like a rocket, some piece of wood just went boom right into the drywall behind me. And you're like, whew, that was close. I could have just been impaled by. Uh, that that spear, basically. And so, listen, I'm not afraid of power tools in the sense that I'm concerned that they'll be irrational or erratic or wrathful, that they're going to attack me or something like that out of the blue. But I fear that what might happen if I use them wrongly, if I'm not paying attention, and, and there could be serious consequences. So my, my fear of power tools doesn't keep me from using them. Actually, it, 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 it's the opposite. It's, I enjoy woodworking. It's a, something that I, I really find pleasure in. But it, but it makes me pay close attention and to use caution. I'm not careless around them. I have great respect for them and what they can do. And so, this, this again, don't pick this illustration apart. It's shot through with holes. But my point is simply, the fear of God is not just a commanded thing. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing for the Christian. It's, it's not the fear that God is going to be erratic and vengeful or that He's going to attack us like that kind of you know, crazy fear of power tools. It's, it's not the fear of wrath. It's not the fear that we're going to miss out on heaven. It, it's, it's, no, that's, that's our inheritance, is, as we've already seen in 1 Peter 1, it's kept in heaven for us, and we ourselves are being guarded by the very power, very power of God until we, we receive it. It's not, that's, not, that's untouchable. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't touch it. But as Christians, we are to fear the Lord who is holy. And He disciplines us. In a loving way, but in a holy way. And, and we, will, we will one day give an account to this holy God. Our works will be tested by fire at the judgment seat of Christ. You see this in several places. But 1 Corinthians 3, 12-14 for instance. We will receive rewards or we will suffer the loss of rewards on that day. So scripture... Scripture speaks, it, it's, it speaks glowingly of the fear of the Lord. It's a good thing. You see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And certainly we know in Proverbs that it's the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 14, 26, He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. You want to you give your children a refuge, men? You fear God. It's a fountain of life. 
14, Proverbs 14, 27. In the New Testament, the early church, in the, in the book of Acts, you see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, church is being built up and it says that they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they multiply disciples. We grow in holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. So, so what, what Peter says, though, is he says, conduct yourselves in fear. And what he means is, is that, that the, this reverential fear should, should encompass every part of our lives every day. It's a present tense imperative. As a habit of your life, conduct yourselves in fear. And we know that, we already know that expression, conduct yourselves. We saw this in, in verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. This will be a favorite expression for Peter. And all your behavior, it, it comes from the idea again of walking, walking back and forth in every aspect of life and what we think, what we say, what we do. In all your conduct of life, our whole lives should be shaped by this kind of fear of the Lord. And so this, and then he gives us three reasons for this fear, or three incentives to have lives that are shaped by holy fear. First one that we're going to see is this, is that we are judged so completely. We are judged so completely. That's the first reason to live lives shaped by holy fear. The first reason for conducting ourselves, all aspects of life, in the fear of the Lord, is that the one we call Father is judge. Verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear. So God is our Father. Verse 17 again. And if, that, you could really translate that little word if as since. And some of you Greek folks, you know this. It's a first class condition. It's assumed to be true. He's not saying if, maybe, if you sort of do. No, if and you do call on God as your Father, if you address God as your Father, and you do, then walk in the fear of the Lord. And so he's writing to believers, to those who've been adopted by God. And again, going back to the first verses of of this letter, what a privilege we have to call God our Father. It's incredible. But let's not forget who our Father is. He is God. He is holy, holy, holy. The Almighty. That is our Father. And if you, whatever kind of father relationship with you had, you probably had some sense of your father's love for you, I hope, but also there was respect in an infinitely greater way. This is our God who is perfect in all of his attributes. But there is a respect that we have for our father because he's God. And, And he is to be loved and he is to be feared. Those are not incompatible. Secondly, God is our judge. The God we appeal to as Father is the one, the text says, who judges. And the, and the grammar here, again, is that present tense. The, the Father, our Father is the one who, who is judging. Current and ongoing, continuous action. It's not just talking about future judgment, but, but He is judging now. He's sitting as judge all the time. Even now. And so because of the present tense, it may be, it may be this may be carrying the idea more of discipline. And we'll see this later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, this idea. It is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. So, which is, uh, I think, about the discipline of, of believers, of the church. You see this outlined more clearly in Hebrews 12, 5 
through 11 there, that the Lord disciplines us as a loving father. And it seems, the text says, painful rather than pleasant in the moment, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, so there are certainly, that is a reality. And so we're being judged, we're being disciplined by the Lord, and therefore we should fear him. This is, he does this for us. But there is also this reality. Yes, we're being judged. We will, we will be judged too. Not, again, not to determine our eternal destiny, but to determine rewards in, in heaven. It's not, but, but to, even then, to use the present tense, it's not as though God's not paying attention now, like he's going to be caught off guard one day and say, well, let me get the you know, status report and let me get an incident report and see what you did through your life. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. No, he sees and knows everything. He is, he is not going to need to look back at a DVR of your life on that day. He knows it all. He's judging even now. He knows whether you're building with wood, hay, and stubble or with gold, silver, and precious stones. He sees and knows everything. So the God that you call Father is judging. But his judgment is impartial. God is impartial. Our loving Heavenly Father is the one who is judging impartially according to each one's deeds. His judgment is without partiality. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't make distinctions based upon position or power or race or wealth or education or tradition. There aren't different rules for different people. He judges everyone by the same standard and with, on the same evidence. What does the text say? Our, our deeds. There's one thing that saves, that is faith alone. And in Titus 3, 5, we could go to hundreds of verses. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's also one standard of judgment for us, even as believers, when we stand before the Lord. And it's our life. It's our deeds. God judges us as Christians according to our works. Again, not for eternal destiny, but for rewards and for loss of rewards. Don't, don't fall into the trap of, of many in, in kind of modern Christianity thinking that since you're saved by faith alone, how you live doesn't really matter. No. It matters greatly. No Christian escapes the searching gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees and knows everything and he judges impartially. Therefore, Peter says, conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord. God's grace doesn't invalidate the requirement that we walk in holiness and obedience before the Lord. Every day, every day, this present tense, God is watching over your holiness and your sanctification. He takes your sanctification very, very seriously as your loving and your holy father. Do you? You take it seriously. He hates sin. He hates it everywhere he sees it. And he sees it all. His mercy, which is abundant and free, it does not in any way dilute his holiness. We don't have a watered-down version of God's holiness in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. Not at all. Next week, our brother Thomas Carinard is going to open God's word for us. Uh, Eric and I are gone to a conference this week, and he's going to speak on the holiness of God. And so we'll, we'll see this great holy God. This is the Lord who loves us and the Lord to whom we are to revere. 
And so by the nature of who God is and how we're related to Him, we should live lives shaped by holy fear. Not dread, not fear of condemnation at all, but this reverential awe that manifests itself in a holy life. That's what Peter says. So that's the first reason. We're to conduct ourselves, to have lives that are shaped in every aspect of our lives by the fear of God. That's the first thing. We, we, are, we, are, um, we are judged so completely. Second reason is this, is that we are here so briefly. Now this is more of an implicit than an explicit reason in the text. But the end of verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so he's sticking close to one of his main themes in this letter. That, that, that This question, how do we live as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers on this earth? And so this is, this is our fundamental identity as Christians. We saw this back in the very first verse of First Peter. We, like Peter's readers, are elect exiles or chosen pilgrims. And so we're, we, on the one hand, are chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be His. And on the other hand, we're, we're in this world, and, and so yet we live as strangers, exiles, pilgrims, sojourners in this world that He made. We don't fully belong here. We're, our, our citizenship is elsewhere. It's with the Lord. And so we're temporary sojourners passing through this land on our way home. And so that's, this is our identity. And so Peter commands us, in light of this, as, 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 as elect exiles, as those throughout the time of our exile, we're to live with this fear of God. So we have reason to fear God because our life here as exiles is, is brief in contrast to eternity. That, that we, we need to remember that. So we're born, we live 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years if you're in good health and if God blesses you 80, 90, 100 years. But it doesn't matter how long you live in a sense because eventually everyone dies. We're all, we're all terminal. And when you die, what's going to happen? You stand before the Lord. If you're a believer, you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for all your deeds. We saw that. And, we, and then we will be with the Lord forever. And so in light of the brevity of our lives against this backdrop of eternity... Peter says, fear God. He, he, he's what really matters. But, but we, we, are, we fear, but we, we don't have the fear of elect exiles. We often have the fear of, of, of those that have just made this our home. And so our fear is often not of the Lord, but it's often of what we see going on around us. I mean, you just look in our day, and there's plenty of fear to go around. Look at this social and political scene in this nation and around the world and people on all sides, they're afraid and angry and uptight. And a lot of Christians get angry very easily. I, I see this when, when talking about political or social issues. It could be in conversation, it could be on social media, but especially if they're talking with people who disagree with them. There's this anger it's fear that undergirds that anger, I think. What is this anger that lies below the surface in so many of us? What is it pointing to? Well, it may mean that we really don't fear God very much. If we fear God as we should, we, we wouldn't lose our temper when we're talking or arguing with someone over some hot-button issue of our day. If we truly fear God, we wouldn't be so afraid of what might happen in this nation, at this time, politically or socially. 
I don't mean we don't care or are unengaged or uninformed about these things, but if you feel yourself getting really angry, which is probably driven by fear over politics or some social issue, do a quick heart check and ask, am I really fearing the Lord? Is my life really shaped by a fear of God? Do I understand the brevity of my life here? Do I understand that I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a citizen here? I'm an exile and I'm chosen by God. I don't belong. My, ultimately, my ultimate hope lies elsewhere. You live like that. So that's the second reason. So we're judged so completely. We're here so briefly. And then the third and final reason that we have, which is the most glorious of all, is that we are loved so deeply. We are loved so deeply. And so Paul, Paul, uh, Paul Peter, <laughs> Peter reminds us of something we know, but we're prone to forget. And it's this, is that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. So see it in verse 18. And, and you may read verses 18 to 21, and what, what in the world does it have to do with fear? And it seems like a new paragraph. And in fact, you, you look in some commentaries even, and, and certainly sermons, and, and they treat verse 17, and then they treat verses 18 to 21 like it's a different thought. But he is giving in these verses a reason for us to conduct all of our lives before, with fear of God. So conduct yourselves with fear, knowing, you know this, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Think about that, though. Does that kind of sound strange to you? It, it, it did to me at first, as I'm thinking about this, or, or I prayed from Psalm 130, verse, Psalm 130 earlier, and verse 4, does that seem backwards to you? There's forgiveness with you, O God, that you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to fear? Maybe, maybe you're thinking it should be the other way around. Knowing we were ransomed by Christ's blood means we have no reason to fear. And that is absolutely true. In a sense, our justification is eternally secure. I mean, there's so many passages we could go to, but Romans 8 is the, the highest of them all. And Romans eight thirty three and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. God is for us. Who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, just on and on in Romans 8 and in so many other passages. But Peter, so, it's, so, so we, have, we have absolutely zero reason to fear that. But Peter says that this blood-bought, permanent, unshakable, unbreakable redemption in Christ is actually an incentive to live lives that are shaped by holy fear of God. So in light of all that God has done for us in Christ to set us free from the bondage of sin and death, we should live in holy reverence before Him. Not in the futility of our former sin-enslaved lives. And so this this language, he says that we, we have... We, we have been ransomed from this feudal ways. It's the language of slavery. Now, slavery 
was just a fact of daily life for first century Romans, like as we see here. People, people, you could classify everybody in that culture, and it was often done this way. This just shows you how, how, how much slavery was a part of daily life for them. But that people were classified as free men, people that had never been slaves, as freed men, people who used to be slaves but aren't now, or as slaves. I mean, you could, you could go around a congregation, free men, free men, freed men, slave, 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 freed men. I mean, and that's, that's how people spoke and referred to one another. So people became slaves from war, from bankruptcy. From They would sell themselves into slavery. They'd be sold by their parents. They, they would be born to slave parents and all kinds of reasons that people were, were, sold, were in slavery for at least some time. But they always had this hope. They could buy or, or work their way to freedom. And so Peter uses this imagery that was so common in that culture and he applies it to Christians. And, 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 and he's not the only one to do this. Paul talked about this in Romans 6.17. All of us were born into, as slaves to sin. We're all slaves to sin. Galatians 4.8, when, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were enslaved to your idols. But there is great hope for slaves to sin. Redemption and freedom from bondage to sin is, is available through the gospel. And what Peter is saying is these people have been ransomed out of the slave market, bought, their freedom has been purchased. And what have they been redeemed from? From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That hereditary chain of sin has been broken by Christ. You're, you're, you're ransomed from it. That all of life without Christ is futility. Sin is futility. Living for yourself, trying to grab hold of all the things you can other than God that you think are going to make you happy, that's futile. Working hard to have more, enslavement to pleasures, just on and on and on. You pursue these things, you get sick, you die. What's the point of it all? It's, it's pointless. It's futile. But, but we've, we've been ransomed from that. From that formal futility of sin. And what did it cost to set us free from sin slavery? What kind of ransom payment was made? Let's, let's see what Peter says. And he describes it in these ways. The first thing we could say is this redeeming, this ransom, ransoming love is permanent. Verse 18. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Let's just stop there. So Peter says, silver and gold are not sufficient to buy you out of the slave market of sin. Why? Because they don't last. They're not, they're not, they're, they're perishable. They're not permanent. They're not durable. We think of silver and gold and think, man, that's some of the most durable stuff there is. But it's, it's not compared to the backdrop of eternity. And so it's not sufficient to deal with our sin. And so, so, but we, but the redemption we have through Christ, we're going to see, it's permanent, has eternal durability. So redeeming love, it's, it's permanent. Secondly, redeeming love is costly. It's costly. Verse 19, we, we weren't redeemed by precious, or by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. The idea of precious is, no, that's so precious when our child, you know, two-year-old does something cute. That's not the idea. It's costly. It's precious jewels. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's applied to Christ's blood. It's of infinite worth. 
And so, so you, you have this scene. It's, what does it take? It's, it's the precious blood of Christ. Redemption with blood. And that imagery goes all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. God warned Adam and Eve when they sinned that they would, if they sinned, they would surely die. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death, separation from Him. And so when they did sin, though, God did not, merciful, God did not kill them on the spot. That was His mercy. That's what they deserved, but He didn't do it. And still, what he did, remember, they had sowed fig leaves to kind of cover their nakedness that they were aware of now. And God killed animals so that they could use those skins to cover themselves and to cover their shame and nakedness. Now, just think about that, though, for Adam and Eve. What a shock that must have been. See something they'd never seen before, the dead animal, the blood of that animal, the lifeblood of that animal soaking down into the ground, this bloody mess. What was God doing in that? He's showing life is in the blood. And, and that without the shedding of blood, this is all setting this up, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Years later, God tells Abraham to offer his beloved son, the promised son, Isaac, he, to offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now by faith, Abraham is obeying what has to be the most difficult command God ever gave to any human being apart from the cross. And yet at the last moment, God intervened. He spared Isaac. But God didn't say, you know what, forget about it. It's okay. No, what he did, there was a ram that God had appointed that was up in the thicket and was, had its horns locked in there. And so God provided that ram as a sacrifice, showing the great cost that he, Heavenly Father, would pay in giving his own son for our sins. It's all setting that up. Years after that, you have the Passover. And so when the death angel saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of, of, of those houses in Egypt, he passed over the houses and the firstborn sons were spared. And on and on you go through Scripture. So why can't God just forgive sin without shedding blood? Well, God can't relax the penalty of sin or and still be just, and still be holy. And listen, none of us can serve as substitutes for the sins of others. Why? Because we all have our own sins to pay for. None of us that are without sin. And only Christ, the, look at the text again, the Lamb without blemish or spot, only He could offer Himself in our place. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We sing this a moment ago. That's the cost of our redemption. Infinite value. Now, so, what, again, this is all in the context. This isn't a sermon on redemption. It's a sermon on fear. If for us to continue living casually, recklessly, carelessly in sin, pursuing our formal, futile ways of sin and bondage to sin, after such a price has been paid, that's ludicrous. It's insanity. Someone compared this to a, to a woman whose husband loved her so dearly and he gave his own life to save her from a rapist and a, and a murderer. And yet then after the funeral, she seeks out this vicious killer and, and pursues romance with him. It's unthinkable. 
But, but that's Peter's argument here because God redeemed us at such infinite cost of His own Son's precious blood, the cost of His own Son's life. We should fear the Lord and pursue holiness before Him. We should aim to put to death the sin for which Christ shed His own blood for in our lives. The last thing we see of this, of this redeeming love it is such an incentive to live lives of holy fear before the Lord. It's all of God. This is how he ends. He, he go, he, he's speaking about Christ who shed his precious blood. And then Peter just launches forward and really echoing some of the things he's made clear in the first, chap, first verses of First Peter. But of this Christ who shed his blood, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. He's like, it's, it's not technically uh, doxology, but it is about as close as you can get. Peter just bust forth with this, this is, is extolling that everything that we have is of God. Jesus is our predetermined personal price for our redemption. God didn't just... Notice, God didn't just know in advance that Jesus would suffer and shed His blood for sinners. No, He predetermined the plan of redemption. He chose, he chose us for Himself according to His foreknowledge. We are elect exiles. One, chapter 1, verse 2. But He also predetermined the means by which He redeem, would redeem us. The death of His Son. The cross wasn't God's last minute idea where he just kind of scrambled around and said, okay, what am I going to do now? And, and, he, and, and, and something he put in place after Adam's sin. Not at all. He planned it from eternity. He revealed it in time. And then he applied it to us so that, so that our faith and hope are in God alone. It's all his doing. We didn't vote on Jesus. He wasn't running for the office of Savior. No, God chose chose His Son to be our Savior. He won our redemption at the cost of His precious blood. And so in light of our great redemption from the bondage of sin and death, redemption that cost the Son of God His own, his own precious blood, redemption that God provided for us while we were still His enemies, redemption that we received apart from any merit of our own, in light of all of that, Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear before the Lord. Our hearts should always, listen, our hearts should always soar with thankfulness as we think of the assurance of our salvation, as we meditate upon the eternal permanence and infinite value of, of the ransom Jesus paid with His blood for us. Nothing can take that away. God wants that for us. He wants that for you. He wants that when we sing of Calvary, when we sing of, of the, 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 the eternal salvation that we have. And nobody, nobody can take that from us. No condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. And, and so as we sing of that, we should soar with that. But that should also lead us to conduct ourselves with fear before the Lord. As, as Christians. To live in such a way that we show how truly precious Christ's blood is. So Paul says it this way to the Corinthian Christians, maybe a verse you're more familiar with. You are not your own. 
you have been bought with a price. Therefore, in light of that glorious reality, glorify God in your body. I hope that it's abundantly evident. I know when you spread a series like this over several weeks, it's easy to miss this and you miss the forest for the trees. But if you were just reading through this letter, and I encourage you to maybe go back and do that several times as we're going through this series. But if you just read through this, you cannot escape the fact that this command, conduct yourselves with fear, is firmly anchored in the gospel. And what better way to fuel holiness and hope and love and Godward fear than to remember Christ at this table. What, what, what we remember in the Lord's table is the greatest motivation we have for holy living. Living godly, Godward lives. I keep pictures of my family as, as you do too, if you're a parent or a grandparent. Pictures of my family on my desk at home where I study most of the time. At my desk here at the, in my office and on my phone now and pictures of kids and family and Brooke everywhere. When I, when I look at them, I'll be away for a few days this week and I'll no doubt scroll back through the photos. And, and when I look at them, they, they stir my heart because of the love that we have for one another. Well, communion, in a sense, is our picture of the Savior and His love for us. This, is, this ought to be the effect it has. May our, may our hearts be moved as we eat and drink together. May our hearts be moved to love and fear the Lord as we stop and meditate upon Christ and what he did by dying on the cross for us to redeem us with his precious blood. Let's pray. Father, would you again help us as we eat and drink and Remember your son and the sacrifice that he made for our sins together. Father, may, may our hearts at the, on one hand soar with the assurance that we have that there is, there is nothing that can take away, nothing can separate us from, from your love for us in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is secure. But also, Father, grow in us a greater desire to walk before you in fear and in holiness and in hope and in love to obey you, Father. So do this dual work, not competing work, but, but complementary work in our hearts, even as we worship together at the table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.